Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, we are in the home stretch for seniors, so coming up to the January 1 deadlines. Uh, of course, there are some deadlines afterwards, but I like to think of all of you out there finishing up your supplements and submitting all of your applications uh, so that you're done. So come January, all you're doing now is waiting. Um, so shoot for that. Um, we are going to be answering your questions in the second part of the show, but before we get to that, we have another one of our stories from our uh, our college coach advisors here, and I'm very excited to have my colleague, Jen Simons, who is a former admissions officer from Tufts, Northeastern, Barnard, and Connecticut College, um, And but she's not here to talk about any of that today. She's here to talk about her story, which is making the choice to go to an all-women's college, um, Wellesley College. Hi, Jen. Hi, Elizabeth. So good to see you. You too. All right. So um, the goal here is just for our listeners to understand how you made that decision. And so I guess my first question for you is, how did you become interested in attending a woman's college? And I think from talking to you that really you became interested in Wellesley, um, mm-hmm. less the idea of a woman's college. But can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so, you know, obviously, based on what you've said about all the places I've worked and just looking at me, if you're watching this um, or hearing my voice, you know that I'm somewhat older, you know, <laughs> I applied to college a long time ago. Um, so things were mostly different, but I think a lot of things are still the same. So I grew up on Long Island and on Long Island, what we did was we applied to large universities. I mean, that was sort of, you You went to a SUNY or you um, went to Cornell or NYU or, you know, like a big state, Penn State was very popular. And so that was sort of what I had in my mind based on just what my friends were doing and peers were doing. And so, um, my stepbrother, Jeff, actually was at a student at MIT. And the summer before my senior year, the summer going into my senior year, I went to visit him at MIT. And um, he, you know, it was the end of the summer and he lived in a fraternity house. And of course, you know, I came and and everybody was like, oh, Jeff's little sister, so cute, you know, really nice to me and everything. And um, I was, I, I will never forget this uh, because it was like just one of those moments um, where we were in the fraternity house and there was a, a group of female people and I'll tell that it's relevant. And so, um, you know, I, I said, oh, you know, I, I'm a senior in high school and I'm looking, you know, at colleges and, you know, do you like MIT? And they said, oh, we don't go to MIT. We go to Wellesley. And I said, oh, Wellesley, what's it like to go to an all girls college? And they just said, like, without any sort of, like, judgment or affect, they said, well, a women's college. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that could have turned someone off. But for me, it was like, oh, wow, I want to be a woman. Like, (laughs) that's, that's like, really cool. I like that. And so I went, I... I traveled with a friend of mine later in the fall um, to visit. She was visiting Brandeis and I was visiting Wellesley and we went and it was like, I walked onto the campus and, 
it was like just everything made sense. Like people talk about that moment that they have and not everybody has it. But I was like, why wouldn't someone want to go to this unbelievably beautiful, nice like place where people are so friendly and you know, it was also interesting to me because, you know, people now talk about women's colleges. Like, I don't want to go to some place that's not diverse. Like, mm-hmm. it was the most diverse environment. Like, there were women from every imaginable background, country, state. Like, it was just, it was so interesting. I saw women, like, that I had never, like, you know, I met people that I had never met before. I mean, I grew up, again, on Long Island. It wasn't the most, like, sophisticated existence, but... For me, it was much more diverse than than a lot of other places would have been. And so, um, yes, I was very fixated on Wellesley. So that sort of became my choice. But now, you know, I worked at Barnard. By the way, my mother actually didn't want me to apply to Barnard. I thought about applying to Barnard, too. Um, but she thought, you know, I grew up in New York and and let's get out. Let's get out. I spent every weekend, you know, with my friends in the city. Let's get out of the city. And I was like, OK. And so, you know, I didn't even really look at the others. In retrospect, I think I, I would have, you know, it wasn't like college admissions wasn't the same thing then. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, so. Um, but for me, it was really just this amazing choice that I somehow I think had the foresight to make and Beth I think I, I told you this like now you know I've been doing this a long time this is you know admissions has been my career college counseling is my career and people sometimes ask me if I'm ever um sort of judgmental like when somebody says like they went to a certain school I'm, I'm an extremely judgmental person like yes so they ask me <laughs> knowing that this is who I am But do I ever judge people based on where they went to school? And absolutely not with one exception. So I don't care if you went to, you know, a school that I've never heard of. I don't care if you've gone to a major university. I don't care if you've gone to an Ivy League. I care if you tell me that you went to a women's college and I don't care if it's Agnes Scott or Mills or Wellesley or Bryn Mawr or Bryn Mawr. Did you hear my Long Island accent? Oh yeah, I love it. (laughs) All right, uh, Bryn Mawr, um, Smith, I don't care. I'm going to like you more just as a result of like that. You're my sister. And that's, I don't know if all women's college, you know, graduates feel like that, but there is this really wonderful bond, not just within my Wellesley siblings. And I guess they are siblings now. We used to call them sisters and sorry about that. So my Wellesley, you are my sibling. If you got, if you went to a women's college, there is a connection. We understand each other and I respect you. And I think you're just, I think you're better. Sorry. I'm just going to say it. So. <laughs> Well, here's well, right. So that's a challenge for all the men out there listening. But, <laughs> but here's a question for you. So you had a vision, which often does happen. And I actually had that same moment when I went to the college I ended up attending. Just I had visited so many, and they all seemed great, and they were fine, and they made my list. And then I went to at the really at the last hour, the place where I wound up, and something about that just went oh. Like mm-hmm. the skies opened up and I said, this is where I've meant to spend the next four years. Yeah. I'm not really sure I buy into that. I had a wonderful four years. I probably could have had a wonderful four years elsewhere. So you had that moment, but what obviously the experience lived up to the expectation or possibly even exceeded it. What for you makes a woman's college, in your opinion, such a great place for young women to spend that four years? Yeah, so that's I, I will answer that question, but I will also start by saying in many, many ways, 
it is no different from any other school. So I'm sort of not answering it the way that you want to, I will, but really, I didn't constantly feel like, oh, I'm at a women's college. Then I would go and visit. I had a, I had a boyfriend my freshman year who went to Colby College. And I would, go, not that there's anything wrong with Colby, but like, it's a fabulous school. But I would go to visit him and I'd be like, it's a little like dirtier. It's a little noisier. Like, it's all the stereotypes. But I don't know. Like, I just felt like for me, there was something incredibly liberating it sounds like so old school about not having that sort of male gaze, like what we used to talk about in the day is like that male gaze that like you could be 100% yourself and you could still be that now at a co-ed school, but you weren't missing anything because you could still have male friends. I was a little sister in a fraternity at MIT. I spent, you know, the summer, a lot of my friends were guys and that was really good, but I could sort of leave that. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I could go home. Um, I just, I felt like everything was there for us as leaders. I think there also is an element for me of enormous pride when I look at the graduates of women's colleges and the success they've had, not just Wellesley, but all the women's colleges. And really, when you look in the industries, like different industries and business, and everything, it's like, I think that women's college graduates have accomplished a disproportionate amount. And I can't imagine that it's not because of that feeling that you have from the very beginning of your academic college career of like, this is your world. And this is, you know, it's the, the brass ring is you, I'm using all these like cliches, but like, it's, it's your, it's yours to grab. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you just, you felt really, really empowered at best. And then there was also just this feeling of like, this is an amazing college, like forget the women's part of it. And this is, you know, this is just an amazing place to learn. I actually, in writing blogs about women's colleges for our wonderful blog, um, I feel like women's colleges have had to try harder to do better. It's like that old saying about like, I'm really dating myself. Like I'm 110 years old, but like that old saying about like Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did, but she did it backwards and in heels. Yes, I yes. think the women's colleges that still exist have had to be so flexible and so creative and nimble and assertive in their, you know, being who they are. And so I don't know, like for me, the other thing I will say, I'm sorry, and you could just make sure I'm quiet when I need to be, but <laughs> is that the friends that I have, and I, you know, I don't know that I've only had one college experience, but I think there's a really, really strong bond with, you know, graduates of a women's college. Like you're just, you're connected in a way that feels more meaningful for the lack of, I don't know, male identified people. But it is an interesting point that you make, right? You had one college experience. And so you can certainly talk to friends about their college experiences, but you can only judge on the one you had and the one you had really felt incredibly impactful. It sounds like. Um, to you and, and to your life. And when you were talking about, um, you know, the leadership opportunities and things like that, that's always something that strikes me because I recall being a freshman and there was a kid who I actually, I would, I was about to say lived in my dorm, but he didn't live in my dorm. He was just one of those people who was great at getting to know everybody. And I remember that he was running for office. And I remember thinking, 
I've never really ran for much of anything in my lifetime, but I remember thinking that seemed so daunting to me in our huge class that I would never have put myself out there like that. And yet I feel like at a women's college, I really might have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had that in me, an interest in it, but I was too, you know, now that's, you know, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to put myself out there. And I, and when I think about women's colleges, one of the things I do think about is that kind of opportunity um, where you just get to kind of, and, and I don't know that it's true anymore that that women feel like they can't do that. That's really, frankly, my own problem and my own hang up, nothing to do with the guys kind of elbowing me out of the way. But it is true that when you're at an all women's college, all of the leaders are going to be female because it's an all women's college. And there's something kind of intriguing about the possibilities that opened up for, for women who maybe wouldn't have thought um, about doing that under with the male gaze around, right? When you say under the male gaze, it makes me think of under his eye and we don't need to get into the handmaid's tale here, but. (laughs) But um, I I think though that's too, like when Hillary was running for president, like before everything, um, I was like, oh, you know, I wonder if women's colleges oddly are going to struggle because they're not going to be seen as necessary when we have a women's women, a woman president in the Mm -hmm. U.S. And then everything sort of went backwards with the Me Too movement. And, you know, I felt like if anybody dares to say that women's colleges are not relevant, you're not living in this time. You're you're not in this reality. And, and, you know, I I think the fact that the first, you know, woman running for president was a graduate of a woman of a woman's college. I think that's not a coincidence. Um, You know, Kamala, it's interesting. She's uh, HBCU. Like there is something to that sort of support that you get from being with people that are similar to you. And I, also, finally, I think women's colleges are so supportive for women who are both timid or afraid to assert themselves, but they're also excellent for women that love to assert. Right. You know, like there's not just one type of, of student that goes to a women's college. It's really right. nice that way. How many of your, I have had a few students apply to women's colleges in my time doing this work. It isn't a choice that everyone's willing to make. I shared with you before we started taping, I was utterly unwilling to consider an uh, all women's college. And I have quite a few, including Wellesley, that I grew up not very far from, um, didn't want to visit, was just, nope, not going to consider it. And which I think is actually, again, wouldn't change my college experience, but one of the reasons I think it's unfortunate is because I probably could have spent a lot less on my college education because there is, uh, traditionally, they they put together great financial packages Uh for applicants. Um, But what what do you say if you have um, a student who you actually think really would flourish in an all-women's college, understanding that you're not trying to get people to go where they don't, where they're not going to be happy, but what are the things you would say to someone um, to at least look into before dismissing the idea of, of a women's college? Well, that's, that's actually the first thing I say to all the students that I think would be okay with it. You have to go visit. I mean, now COVID has screwed everything up with that, but (laughs) 
you have to actually sort of be on that campus and see what it feels like and meet the women and talk to them and ask them questions if you can, or, you know, now virtually, you you have to at least try. There, there are a couple, there are three sort of versions of responses that I get from my students about applying to a women's college. The first is, oh, no, 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 like, no way. And then you right. just, fine, like, okay. And then the second, and the truth is, my best friend in the whole world from Wellesley, she's my sister, like, I love her more than, you know, anything. Um, She wasn't terrifically, like, she should have gone to a rah-rah football school. That's, mm-hmm. what she, that's what she needed. It wasn't like a women's college, not a women's college. She needed a place that was like, you know, just a different culture. Mm-hmm. But, um, so if you're like, no, then no, that's fine. Then there are women that say, well, I'll, I'll apply to Barnard because I have Columbia right there. It's not really a women's college. Well, yes, it is. Like it is, <laughs> right? you know, um, so you know, then you could sort of work with that. And then there are women who for either they consider themselves feminists or there's a particular department or something that they're really, you know, gravitating to. I think you just have to sort of suspend the fact that it's a women's college and look at it for other things and find other things that you feel appeal to you. And then when you're sort of making the decision to apply and making hopefully the decision to enroll, then you could sort of factor that in. But really the fact that it is a women's college, while it's very empowering and exciting and wonderful and all that, it's not a reality of your day-to-day existence where you're constantly thinking, I am at a women's college. This is just your college experience. Try to remind them of that. Things like location, size, major, you know, all the other factors are more relevant, um, you know, to the search than the women's college. Right, right. I love it. I think it's great advice. And I, I love that. I love the story, though, that, oh, what's it like to go to an all-girls college? Well, a woman's college. And, hey, I want to be a woman. That sounds like a great idea. I mean, why not start there? I love that. Um, Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And I apologize to anyone who went to Colby College in the late 80s, early 90s. It was not dirty. It was really a magical place, I'm sure. So let <laughs> me for saying that. Okay. Sorry, you just had one weekend. Um, all right. <laughs> we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are answering your questions. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. 
That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are doing an extra-long listener Q&A segment today. And joining me, my partner in crime for these, is Shannon Vasconcellos, who you know as a, a current uh, college coach colleague, but also a former financial aid officer from both BU and Tufts. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. All right. Thanks for joining today. We're going to do sure. what we do. We've got a lot of yeah. questions and more of them are admissions again. Yes. So, oh, I get to do a lot L- of talking. Lucky you. You're on I the know. hot seat. <laughs> All right. All right. So the first question that came in from Aparna on our Facebook page, she asks, uh, I had a question about applying early. And by that, she means like two to three weeks early for the regular decision round of schools. Is this beneficial in any way? Does it show the schools that even though you did not apply early decision or early action, you are still super interested in the school? Is there any benefit to applying just a couple weeks early? So in a word, nope. (laughs) The only way to show that you're super interested in the school, in addition to applying either early decision or early action, or even in place of that would be, to do some of that um, demonstrated interest stuff that we've talked about in the past, right? You get on their mailing list, you open the emails, you click on links that are in the emails, you follow those down the rabbit hole, mm-hmm. you spend time on that website. In When you can visit, you do visit. If you can't visit, you engage with them by doing uh, a virtual visit or a virtual information session or any of the other number of ways they that a college provides for you to interact with them. But getting your application in two to three weeks early literally does not have anything. Admissions doesn't even know when your application came in. I mean, the you know they don't care. As yeah. an admissions officer, you're reading the file that's yeah. in front of you. Um, my advice is that you, when the application is as good as it can be and you're ready to go, there's no harm in applying a couple of weeks early if, it's, if you've worked hard on it and it's ready to go. Um, but I generally want my students to be pressing submit uh, at least a couple of days early. Right. And the only reason for that is in case there are technical glitches. Yes. Um, so the UC system actually had to extend its deadline because the system crashed on November 30th, which is the last possible day to submit your application. You don't want to be in that last possible day because they were lucky that the UCs were willing to extend the deadline. Um, In another year, if you had technical issues, they normally, most colleges wouldn't. And Stanford even says that is not an excuse. We expect you to be prepared enough 
that you are submitting slightly ahead of the deadline so that you don't get caught up in some technical issues. So does it help you? No, it does not. Um, (laughs) Other than peace of mind. Right, exactly. Yeah, I remember there being some years in the past where there were been like big storms on application deadline days and worrying about power outages. You don't want that. Nope, exactly. Just get it done a couple days early, be all set. Yeah. All right. We have a whopping one finance question this week, Shannon. All right. (laughs) This one comes to Michael and actually comes to us through our LinkedIn um, page. So if you're not following us on LinkedIn, hey, if you're on LinkedIn, this would be a good thing. You can ask us questions. All right. And the question is, Northeastern and BU seem to have a policy where they will guarantee a financial aid award for four years, as opposed to other schools where you need to do the CSS profile every year. Are there other schools with similar policies? Is it a, it is a big benefit to know what package, what the package will be for four years. Um, And thanks in advance, if you can address this. So what are your thoughts here? Yeah, so it is certainly an unusual policy. At most schools, you have to reapply for financial aid every year. Um, The only school I know off the top of my head, there may be a few others out there, but the only one that that springs to mind is um, Gonzaga. On, on the other coast from, yes. not quite on the coast, but it pretty much as far away from Northeastern and BU as you could get. Uh, but they also have a policy where they do guarantee an aid package for four years. Um, that's the only other school that springs to mind. Um, and I will say, yes, this certainly is a nice benefit, gives you peace of mind to know exactly what you're getting for, uh, in terms of financial aid for all four years. Um, but I also want to say it may not be as huge a benefit as, as you might initially think if you are very worried about a financial aid package changing from year to year, they normally don't. Um, even if it's not guaranteed, I will say that most schools do try to keep financial aid uh, very consistent from year to year. Uh, if it does change, there is always a reason for that. Schools you know, aren't really in the practice of like a bait and switch. Right. Um, when, when I worked at BU, before they had this policy, this is, this is fairly new for them. Um, when I was there, you did have to reapply each year. Uh, I certainly took phone calls where parents thought that there was a bait and switch going on because financially did decrease in the second or the third year. There was always a reason for that, whether it be, you know, one of the parents got a new job where they were making twice as much money. If your income does increase significantly, uh, you can expect at most schools aid to decrease. Um, Other common reasons were if you had um, multiple kids in college um, and that's what, you know, your, your initial aid package is based upon. And then the older child graduates, uh, you can expect the aid package for the younger child to decrease because now, theoretically, you can devote all of your resources to that one child. Right. Um, the other very common reason was if the student did not make the grades. There's always a certain GPA requirement, credit load requirement to keep financial aid. Um, so if the child does or the student does not make the grades, that's another reason aid can go away. Barring those things, if this family's financial circumstances stay about the same, financial aid should stay about the same in most circumstances. So the guarantee that BU and Northeastern and Gonzaga have it is quite nice, but I would say don't 
you know, exclude other schools because they don't have the guarantee. Usually aid will stay the same. I think it's it's a big benefit if you know for sure that your circumstances are going to change, you know, for the better, you know, you just got a new job and that's going to change income on next year's financial aid application. That's when it does tend to be uh, a very nice benefit to have it locked in for the four years. Right, right. I And I do think this highlights something that we, I, I think is a big fear that exists out there um, and a lot of people, a lot of whispers and rumors and half-truths yes. about the idea that what colleges do is lure you in with one thing and then change it the second they have yeah. the chance to. But that has not at all been our experience. And no. if you think about it, nobody could, you couldn't operate that way because it, it could, would mean that a family who could afford it one year simply can't afford it the next if nothing on their end changes Um, And colleges are, that is not what they're trying to do. Um, You know, they are trying to make it possible for students to enroll and stay enrolled. Yes. Uh, Even if it doesn't always feel like that, they are trying to. So exactly. All right. All right. So next question for you comes in from Natalie. And she said, my sophomore daughter is trying to decide courses for junior and senior year of high school. She was thinking pre-med track. She is not interested in applying to highly selective schools, but may apply to a couple of BSMD programs. The subject which gives her the most struggle is math. She is in honors geometry, honors chemistry, and honors physics. She can take honors pre-calc BC next year and AP calc senior year, but she may want to instead take AP computer science, which they call a math class at her school, and AP statistics instead. Even without honors pre-calc, she is on track to take AP Bio in 11th and AP Chemistry in 12th. Do you suggest she stick with the calculus track in light of her uh, current future career goals, or would it be acceptable to take the two APs in stats and computer science instead? Okay, let's unpack a couple of things here. The first thing is the idea that at most schools, there isn't a pre-med track. Um, There are some schools that offer a pre-med major, but but pre-med, all that really means is that when you're in college, you have a larger goal of going on to medical school. And there are typically about 10 classes that you have to take in order to be eligible for medical school. And actually next week, we are going to be talking about Um, post-baccalaureate programs for students who, having graduated, are now thinking they want to go to medical school, and they didn't take all of those pre-med requirements. So tune in next week if you want to learn more about that. Um, uh, So so that's one thing. She has a goal of being a doctor. Um, She says that she's not interested in, uh, she's not going to apply to highly selective institutions, but she's considering a couple of BSMD programs. Most BSMD programs are pretty selective. So While you may not be thinking about it, um, for some of these programs, it is as difficult as getting into an Ivy. Um, So that is something to keep in in consideration. The other thing is that math and science are going to be key components of success in medical school. And so for that reason, um, if she wants to apply to some BSMD programs and be as competitive as she can be, she absolutely needs to stick with that math track, the honors pre-calc and the AP calc by the time she is a senior. Um, Not having pre-calc at all 
And not, I appreciate that the high school considers AP computer science a math. Not all colleges are going to consider that a math. And certainly they consider the AP stats a math, but not, for better or worse, it's not considered to be as rigorous as um, the AP calculus class. So, you know, part of the issue with AP is, is that um, with a lot of colleges, not all, certainly not all, but the more selective you get, the more the APs really just signal rigor. And so the colleges are saying, we want you to have a really rigorous high school curriculum. And so taking those APs signals rigor to them. You may get, um, you know, you, you, you may be able to qualify to get credits for those, but at a lot of the more selective schools, they're not even taking, they're not even offering credit for a five. Um, So that, you know, again, lots of schools still taking, offering credit for AP scores. So I don't want to, you know, that could very well be a possibility, but the goal with taking the APs in many ways is showing that you can handle a really rigorous curriculum and BSMD programs are absolutely expect, expecting yeah. you to be in a very rigorous curriculum and handling it um, because they're in essence in, you know, sort of accepting you to medical school early right. um, on the basis of what you've done so far. So I just don't think that doing the AP computer science followed by AP stats is going to serve your daughter as well as um, sticking with that more traditional math track. Right. Yeah. Because even though the computer science and the stats have the AP designation, that calculus track is considered the more rigorous curriculum, correct? Right. And it's definitely just the more normally or not normally, but when I see students doing AP computer science, maybe they do that in their senior year in lieu of a different class or they add it. Um, but you know, to count that as a math, I, I, again, the high school does, maybe the college will, but just because the high school does, doesn't mean that the college right. will consider it a math. Gotcha. Perfect. Uh, and the next question uh, is about legacy applicants. Uh, so it asks, how are legacy applicant applications read and evaluated? Does it matter if the alumni parent is an involved alumni? Uh, and what if there happen to be multiple legacy candidates applying from the same high school? Um, so the answer here is one of my favorites, and that is it depends. depends. <laughs> so different colleges are looking at and treating legacy differently, right? So um, having a les- legacy designation does nothing for you in the UC system. Um, it can certainly be a factor in other schools. Um, and... Sometimes legacy applicants are read all on their own. Generally, though, they're read um, along with everyone else's. And there is sort of a notation that the the parent or the grandparent attended. Um, Even different colleges will consider legacy differently. So they might, there are some places where they might consider you a legacy if you have a sibling who attended or is attending the college. You might be considered a legacy if an aunt or an uncle or a cousin did. But most traditionally, legacy is a parent or a grandparent. And when I worked at Penn, it was only the parent or grandparent that conferred legacy um, status on you. But really, you could have attended any of Penn's programs, undergrad or graduate, and get that legacy status 
Um, so there were huge numbers of legacy in our pool, and we did not pay attention to how involved the legacy, you know, the alum was. We didn't pay attention to how much money the alum had given, um, unless it was a significant amount, in which case it was less about legacy and more about a development um, case. So the role legacy played at Penn was a big part of the applicant pool could claim legacy status. And, um, you know, it, if the student was very competitive and, and in the mix, that, that would be an extra point in their favor or like a little bit of a tip factor. But it certainly didn't take someone who wasn't particularly competitive and make them competitive because they had that legacy addition, um, you know, checked next to their name. Right. I know at Harvard, the the really the greatest legacy impact is for Harvard College alums versus um, graduate. They don't really come out and say that, but I know from traveling with Harvard reps that it's really the the Harvard College legacy piece that gets you something versus the graduate programs. I remember um, at Duke, they were looking at uh, alums who had connections to the university. And by that, I mean, they were either donating money or donating their time. And it didn't need to be huge sums of money, but it needed to be, maybe they were just steadily every year, they donated some money. And so they showed that they remained connected to the university. And again, it could also be your time. You showed up to reunions, you went to homecoming, you, maybe you volunteered to, for, a committee or something like that. So they were looking for you to still be um, a connected alum if they were going to give a little bit of an extra consideration to your child. So the long and short of this one is that it's really impossible to give a blanket statement of how legacy candidates are treated. There are some schools that don't consider legacy at all. I mentioned the UCs, but there are some private institutions that are starting to introduce policies um, like that. And um, the last part of the question was, what if there are multiple legacy candidates applying from the same high school? Well, as I've really, as I've just kind of laid out for you, basically, the legacy is just a piece of things. So you have to be a very competitive applicant first. And only at that point will the legacy piece kick in. And so if every single one of those applicants who are applying are super competitive for that institution, um, then, you know, it may be that institutional priorities dictate they're going to admit them all. But typically, it's going to be just like any time a big group of students applies to one institution. They're going to look for what they consider the best students in that group that are going to add the most from their perspective and given the larger applicant pool in that year. And that might mean that one kid with a legacy um, tie is admitted. It could mean that none of those kids with a legacy tie is admitted. It could mean that five of the kids, if there are 10 with a legacy tie, gets admitted. It just is so dependent on what each of the individual applicants show and on what the larger applicant pool looks like. So, Perfect. Yeah, I think it's sort of human nature that we try to reduce it down to, it must be this one thing, that, yes. but it tends to, that's why the answer to half of our questions is it depends. <laughs> it, it never comes down to just one thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. 
Um, so the next question came in from one of our Instagram followers. So I like we've had questions from Facebook and LinkedIn and now Instagram and yes. questions that have been emailed in. So there's so many ways to get in touch with us and keep those, those questions coming in. Uh, this one came in on Instagram. My daughter has applied to several schools test optional. Um, she hasn't heard back from many. By the way, this question came in on November 17th. So she may have heard back by now, but as of November 17th, she hadn't heard back from many schools while her friends who did submit scores had heard back um, from some schools, not all, but definitely more than her daughter had heard from. Are her chances worse without SAT scores? She did take it once, albeit she didn't do very well. It was during COVID. She had to wear a mask and she just panicked. Um, She has a great GPA and overall application uh, 4.8 GPA weighted four year sports and clubs community service letters of recommendation all of those things were great she's just getting worried uh, as am I mom says she's (laughs) pursuing a competitive program nursing uh, and all the more concerned her chances are lessened compared to other students applying with test scores okay so again we're missing well not again but we're missing some information here And um, I think that information is important to the discussion, but we'll talk as, let me fill in some of the blanks that I'm, first of all, what I don't have any idea is if your daughter is applying and her friends are applying to the same schools. So if her, they, they, let's say she and her friends each applied to three different schools, the same three schools, the friends who submitted test scores have heard back from those three schools. She has not heard back from that school. That's a different situation than her friend applied to three schools, another friend applied to three schools, she applied to three schools, each of the friends have heard back from two of the three schools they applied to, she's only heard back from one, but none of these schools are the same, Same. right? So that is, um, you know, that's a big thing. Then the other thing is that she has applied to a competitive program. And what I'm going to assume here is that her friends did not apply to nursing so that she is maybe the only one of the friends who's applied to a specific nursing program. Um, The first thing that I will say is that the vast majority of colleges who have said we are test optional for um, because of COVID-19, we know you can't get you can't really test. And in your daughter's case, she tested, but it didn't go well. And she wisely decided not to submit those scores. Um, they have adjusted the way that they are doing their admissions process. Now, there are a few outliers of schools where they have eliminated or they made tests optional, but then all the language in their on their websites would seem to indicate the opposite. And so I'm going to call out Georgetown here. They are basically saying, if you really absolutely positively cannot test like there's nothing you can do to get a test in, then I guess we will consider you test optional. If I'm a student and a parent or a parent and I'm reading that, or you do what I do, my assumption is you really do need testing there, which, you know, I I don't think that that is helpful in any way. You might as well not be test optional. Um, I think Michigan has come kind of close to doing something similar. Like if you really positively absolutely can't test, I mean, we'll take, um, a PSAT score, if you've got one, which is never meant to be used in admissions, um, they are sort of, but if the school is very, very upfront saying, hey, we are test optional, we get it. You're not able to get testing, or even if you could test, you're worried about risking your health or the health of your family members, it's fine. 
but they are having to adjust and they're having to adjust the way that they do admissions. So if it was a big part of their process in the past, well, now they're just, they're no longer considering that, considering that part. So it could take longer for them to read files. Um, And in your daughter's case, where she's applying to a very selective program that is, you know, often probably has really counted on those test scores as as another way to determine a student's viability for the program, they're just going to take a little bit more time. So the only time I would get worried is if there was a deadline by which they said they would let you know, and they've missed that deadline without any sort of like um, note or anything. But I I just don't think that you can say, because my friends are hearing back from other colleges and other programs, and I haven't, suddenly I am going to be less than because I am test optional. Um, we are not seeing that in the, it, there not that many schools have actually released their results. Very few have, in fact. So it could just be that the friends have applied to programs that are getting those, uh, those answers out really quickly. In fact, what we've seen is that in some cases, schools are going to release their results a little bit later than usual because they've received so many more applications. So the hardest part sometimes of this process is just to kind of sit back and let the process take its course. Um, I would say you can't control the speed at which your daughter's acceptances are going to come out, but you can control worrying about it too much. You know, like this is the situation. She can't magically produce excellent test scores to accompany her applications. She had to go test optional and now you have to trust the process. And what I believe you will see with the excellent academic record um, is that she is likely to be just fine um, and that colleges are just taking a little bit more time or maybe they're not taking extra time at all. They're just on their normal course and you're feeling like it's not normal simply because some other colleges release a little bit earlier in the process. You kind of just have to take a breath and sit with it. And that's hard, but it's what has to happen. And I understand if this is your first time going through the process and you see other people getting results, you do start to worry, but take it from us. When this question came in November 17th, very, very few schools. Almost nobody. Even at this point, very few schools uh, in early December have released. So, By the time this airs, December 17th, yes, a lot of schools with early action, early decision will have released, but even there are plenty of schools with early action deadlines on November 1 that don't release results until January or even February. So, um, you know, go to the websites of the schools you've applied to, look at what they say about when they're releasing decisions. They'll usually give you some idea um, that's the place to go rather than sitting around thinking like, oh my goodness, because I haven't heard that somehow means I am not competitive because I didn't send test scores when they told me I didn't have to. Right. Just (laughs) let's take a breath. I think you're going to be fine. (laughs) I'd love to know though. Keep us posted. Yeah. Let us know. Uh, next question. Uh, how important are high school counselor recommendations? In my son's school, there is not much contact between students and counselors. And given COVID, it has become even more limited. Would a neutral generic recommendation from the counselor hurt? My son has great recommendations from his two teachers uh, as they have known him for two to three years now. And I have to imagine this is a very, very common situation and what is the um 
Right. The guidance counselor to student ratio in this country is something like 500 to one. So how would guidance counselors possibly get to know 500 students each that well? Right, right. I think the key here is that when you are reading applications, you have context. So you know more about the high school. I don't think that um, so all high schools put something together called a school profile. And if you're interested, you can generally find that on the school's website, usually in the guidance section. And if you don't find it, you could ask the guidance counselor what their profile looks like, and you will see what uh, admissions officers see when they are reviewing your application. Um, The more holistic the process, the more they're going to look even more deeply into that profile. But what they see, and the less holistic the process, often they're not really asking for a council recommendation, or if they are, they're really only turning to it if they have questions. So the answer is that... um, The high school, the colleges understand if your son is at a high school where there are 250 students to every one counselor, or I remember um, I bring this up relatively frequently because I just remember thinking, wow, I don't know, this seems so hard. There were a thousand students in the senior class and two college, and they weren't even college counselors, they were guidance counselors for the entire senior class. So 500 to one ratio. We knew that those counselor letters were going to be completely perfunctory. And in fact, at the time, Penn had a, um, a thing that you could just check marks on it. And um, there are some places where the guidance counselor basically says this is a student in good standing because they don't know the student. And in those cases, you turn to the school, the, the teacher recommendations to really get a much more insight into who the student is. So the question is, does a kind of relatively... Um, you know, a letter that isn't really saying much because the counselor doesn't know the student, will that hurt the student? The answer is no, it's not going to hurt the student. Now, if you go to a school where there are, you know, you're at a private school, there are 50 students in the senior class and there are three counselors and the letter is bland and impersonal, well then, yeah, that is going to hurt you because here's an environment where they're meant to get to know the student and often a bland letter indicates I didn't really have anything good to say. So I'm not saying anything bad. I'm just, this is, this student's fine, right? That's not good. Um, but one thing that you can do for schools where maybe you don't know the counselor as well, what they often per- ask families to fill out is a brag sheet. Um, and you absolutely want to fill that out. You want to provide examples. So if you want to share all the things you think are wonderful about your student with the guidance counselor or the school counselor, and if your student wants to share important things with the school counselor, it has to be specific. It can't just say, you know, my student, my son is a wonderful student. He studies really hard. Um, You know, these are not the kinds of, you just want to imagine what would you want the letter to say and the examples that you would want the counselor to include. Mm -hmm. And that's what you need to write in the brag sheet. So that's one way to get around it. Um, All right, Shannon, believe it or not, we have um, reached the end of our time for questions. It was kind of fun to do without a break today. Of course, maybe it was fun because I got to do all the talking. I I don't know. (laughs) We know I like to talk. I know you do too. I appreciate you joining (laughs) just to kind of engage in that conversation with me. No problem at all. Um, And thanks to Jen for joining earlier today. Um, Next week, I am back. Um, We are going to be reviewing students' regular decision plans. So things to think about as that regular decision uh, deadline looms. 
Um, we're also going to be talking about if you're ready to get control of your money in 2021, well, a spending plan could be a good approach. So we're going to talk about that. And I mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about post-baccalaureate programs for med school applicants. Um, so that should be a good one in our med school series. Um, and don't forget, if you have questions, you can send them to us, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. You could email us at gettingin.voiceamerica.gmail.com. And we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.